Alrighty, we're going to get to it. Father, we just thank you for the morning. Thank you for the time in which we can gather as your people, proclaim how great you are, look into your word, study to be that much more understanding and just focused on you. And with that, Lord, help us to exercise our love amongst the saints. Help us to be there for those who need encouragement, correction. Um, in, in all ways, Lord, help us to recognize that as men we're all weak. As men we, we struggle. And yet, Father, here in the church there is redemption. There is being in fellowship with your people. Help us not to shrink from that fellowship. Help us to step up in that as we would in our own families, Father. Help us to adjust and confess our own sin and yet be uh, understanding and correcting of the sins of others. I encourage us now in your word. Guide us by your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now the handout is the exact same one we were working on before in dealing with the covenants. But if you remember... We didn't get very far. I don't know why. Um, who likes to talk a lot? Does she want one? Good morning, sir. How are you? Well, the, the thing that was, was we were trying to um, point out the fact of uh, God's covenants as revealed in Scripture and the purpose behind them. If uh, I succeeded anywhere, I hope you got the understanding and the feeling that God's covenants, like His revelation, is progressive. It's to bring into fine focus His eternal plan. The eternal gospel has never been any different from when God walked with uh, Adam in the garden to when uh, that angel in Revelation is, is seen through the heavens carrying the eternal gospel. It has never changed. And there are certain key phrases throughout Scripture that are just just there as jewels that we, we tend so often to overlook. But if you just look at the different versions of how God says, I will be their God, they will be my people, it is precious. And, and we've seen that now in where we walk through the covenant with Noah, that this was probably the most awesome widespread, good morning, good morning back there. Holding down the back row. That's, oh, there's a few of you back there. That's all right. As the Lord leads. As the Lord leads. But um, the covenant with Noah was the most widespread. It affected all, all mankind, all life, all land. But then it gets narrowed down with the Abrahamic covenant, which is one of those covenants that the New Testament especially just really centers on. The idea that uh, Abraham believed God, God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Well, how does that work? You know, what, what, what's the trigger mechanism? What, what makes that happen? Well, we then get to the Mosaic Covenant, or the Priestly Covenants, and we look at the fact that this is where so many people stumble. God wanted to give us a demonstration of how righteousness works, and he proclaimed that he will have Israel be his witness, good or bad, blessed or cursed. And with that, the trouble of sin is huge, isn't it? Absolutely huge. But when you understand that as these things were given and as this demonstration was being laid, what's conditional and what's unconditional uh, comes into play. If you had to give me one of the most unconditional things in all the universe, what would you tell me that is? What, 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 what does the universe just scream over? God's glory. God's love. God's love. I heard, I heard a few other things. But... You said the universe, I said gravity. <laughs> Gravity is not true throughout all universe, is it? I mean, that's the trouble with a black hole. It's it's a little over over amplified, yes. And then you have other areas where it's uh, played down a lot, right? Earth. Earth. Well, Earth. But what we're getting to is the fact that God's love is 
completely unconditional, and yet is it applied? I got to be careful how I say this. I almost said, is it applied to all? Well, it is applied to all. Available to all. That is true. That is true. But um, he starts defining it um, on his terms, starting with Abraham, in which what's amazing is we find out how holy and how... And, and that term holiness, remember, it has to do with being separate. It has to be... It has to do with the idea that it is is uh, not contaminated. It's not. Um, it's not disturbed. Holiness is the idea that it is pure in and of itself and cannot be tainted. But it has, in, in its essence, the idea that it's separate. Well, if God is so separate, see, a lot of people don't have any problem with that. With that, keep God separate from all of creation, and we have no problem with God. Because if he's separate from creation, he lays no moral claims on me. He has no authority on me. I'm nothing but part of a little ant farm that he started somewhere along the line that he got bored with, and now he's running off doing other things, right? So I'm free to do whatever I want with the other ants. See? Well, our God is not that kind of a God. He's very much in um, in tune with man and wants to not only give his love to man but bring man back to that state that state of holiness he says in Leviticus be ye holy for I am holy that's not just a goal of what we strive to do saying well I can never do it right no it's the promise we will be we are on our way we are, are making it. Now, the Mosaic Covenant, with all the laws, with all the rules, with all the, the, what's laid out there, helps you understand what Abraham's covenant was all about. Now, how binding is it on me today? There are those who tell you, you, know, you really still shouldn't eat pork. The Japanese and the Germans, you know, the reason why they lost the war is because the Japanese ate raw fish and the Germans eat blood sausage and we know that both those things are against the law see <laughs> you said Abrahamic but you meant Mosaic which one? about rules oh yeah I meant Mosaic about rules but isn't there rules in the Abrahamic covenant when you go through it my gosh if you don't uh, take a little off the top there there's just a problem isn't there well even in this country it was quite popular to circumcise all men, for what reason? Oh, he had those who sat there and said, well, men don't know how to wash themselves, da 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 I came up with all kinds of good reasons, right? But no, it really boiled back to the fact that there are those who felt that, uh, you know, we still need to keep the Abrahamic covenant in circumcision, you know, and then they do that. Then you got groups around the world who sit there and say, well, if it's good to circumcise men, let's circumcise women, we'll be even holier. Man. What a bunch of wackos, huh? At least women, generally women are smart enough to say, you know, leave that thing alone. Right? <laughs> yeah. There's back to the mosaic side of that code, the food things. You and I discussed it earlier. Isn't, it, isn't, it, isn't there a lot of wisdom in those, in the mosaic laws that apply now? Cleanliness. Cleanliness for one thing is kind of not part of the culture that day, and then you're looking at some of the... Uh, you can do that. You, you, you can make that claim. But um, uh, probably the, the strongest argument you had was trigonosis from pork. All right? Well, the trouble was, was even though they knew of trigonosis in pork, they knew that pork could get you ill. Pork was considered one of the easiest meats to raise, right? Probably one of the tastiest meats to eat. Extremely easy to butcher. You don't have to leave it to hang for very long. Whether you kill it as a suckling or whether you kill it as a full-grown sow, it is still generally good meat. Well, that's not true of, of most other animals. Um, it was considered uh, the party food, right? I mean, even today, come on. 
you can't have an ice cream commercial without people telling you that not everything's better with what? Bacon, right? I mean, the whole idea of it. And when you travel worldwide, it's amazing. You go to Asia, the idea of, of roasting a pig in a village is, is tremendous. You go to the South Sea Islands, there's nothing better. In fact, uh, in Hawaii and that, I mean, certain roast pork and, and pineapples were reserved only for the royal family, right? All the rest of the people had to eat fish, you know? You know? It's funny, you know, how, how things change, you know, culture-wise. Um, uh, you, you go to Europe and Germany, and uh, some of the best meat, uh, if you really want to uh, have a feast, man, it's pork that it's all about. Now, in our country, because of the way the range was and all that, and even in South America, in uh, Argentina and that, uh, it was so perfect for cattle that beef became the standard, right? But generally, worldwide, if you had cows, you didn't need them. Cows are too uh, productive and, and good elsewhere, you know? You ultimately ate them, but the point being is, man, uh, milk, other things you get from it is even better. I, you know, that the African tribe, I think it's the Maasai, who not only milk their cow, they bleed them, you know, and, and, and use the blood. And cows are very good at, at, you know, being able to tolerate this. And you can have a cow feed you for... You know, many, many, many years. But um, generally, pork was the party food. Now, to cut yourself off from pork in a culture like what Israel was walking into in Canaan is basically to really stand out different. Right? You're talking about people. It would be like, well, exactly what vegans try to do initially in this country today. I mean, as I grew up, a meal wasn't a meal unless you had beef. You know, that old commercial, what's for dinner? Beef, right? I mean, it was just, it was just so ingrained in our culture. So the idea that we would turn around and just eat that is crazy. But now, let's put it in the context of someone who couldn't keep the Mosaic Law, and yet his whole heart is bent around it. When you go to the story of Daniel... Right? <clears throat> Where he's supposed to eat all this food from the king's table out there in Babylon, right? Which is non-kosher. But the idea was he was to eat as a young man and grow in stature in wisdom and strength. Alright? He couldn't eat that with a clear conscience being a Jew. But at the same time, he had no way of keeping kosher. He didn't have a kosher butcher. What's he going to do? Right? So his thing was, I will eat only vegetables. Now, there are those who tell you that Daniel's diet was healthier than any other. That's not the point of Daniel's diet. The point of Daniel's diet was, he basically is sitting there eating grass, and yet he's growing in strength and wisdom, and notably, him and his buddies, above all the others. It's not that the vegetables were better for you. It's that God was growing them in their faith and blessing them. And when you reverse that in the Mosaic Law, it has the idea that we will not do what the other cultures do. If you know Jews today, if they're Orthodox, you go into the kitchen, they have two sets of dishes to cook with and to eat with. One's for meats and one's for dairy products. Two kitchens. Yeah, yeah, actually a lot of them have physically two kitchens. Because they will never, you will never see an Orthodox Jew eat a cheeseburger. You do not put dairy with meat. Where does that come from? Comes from... Yes, boiling a kid, a goat, a baby goat, in its mother's milk. Now, we look at that verse, we kind of go, well, what are you talking about? You know? If you know anything about cooking meats and this and that, stewing them in milk can be a very tenderizing thing, yes? But this is where um, um, 
what do they call them? The, the scientists run around, dig up old places, find out all things. Archaeologists. This is where archaeologists have really helped us out. Part of Canaan ritual was when you deal with um, uh, fertility rites, which is huge in Canaan. That's why uh, sacrificing a child to Moloch, you know, giving your firstborn to the gods, gave you bumper crop later, right? The idea that you always gave first fruits. This is very much a Canaanite idea that God wanted to just stop and, and deal with. The whole sacrifice of Isaac had to do not just with testing Abraham's faith, but putting an end to the idea of child sacrifice. Because it was huge. Well, another thing that was common was there was a mystical idea that if you took a goat that had just birthed a calf, or calf, a, a kid, and you, you raise that kid for a little while, but while it's still suckling, that if you then take the milk of the mom and cook that baby in that milk, that it is not only good to eat, but it has certain spiritual qualities to it. It's the idea that uh, the very thing that should be nurturing it is now killing it, Yes? And, and you get to, to, to reap on it. Well, what God's trying to put an end to there is idolatrous practice. It has nothing to do with whether you can mix meat with dairy. I mean, does anyone really have a problem with a you know, grilled cheese sandwich you know, with, with, uh, you know, with ham? It's good, right? A cheeseburger, come on. <laughs> Who doesn't want a cheeseburger instead of just a regular burger? You want a cheeseburger right now? She's taking orders. She's running down to uh, Burgerville. We're going to have it before the service. No, no. No, so see, you, you can... It, it, it amazes me when God comes up with things. He puts out rules. And you could very easily turn them into things that are simply practical. Right? But then he tests us in certain things. He tells me that certain animals are kosher. Right? Well, he tells me that it has to split the hoof. It's got to chew the cud. All right? Well, that's good. That's deer. That's cows. It's, I think, even camel. No, they're, they're soft-toed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still... It, 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 has still to, it has to have both. No, no. See, this is the problem. Cloven hoof. I'm sure it said cloven hoof. But the rabbit is called an animal that's clean. A rabbit? A rabbit. Now, the problem was, the rabbis had no problem because they said that having toes constitutes a split hoof. Alright? But the problem was chewing the cud. Right? So, it, it's a crack up. You go from before the time of Christ to all these rabbis for you know 600 years after Christ trying to explain this verse. And the closest they could come up with is the way a rabbit chews. They said, well, a rabbit chews, you know, like a cow, right? But that is not the technical of chewing the cud. It wasn't until the 20, early in the 20th century, in studying rabbits, they discovered something about rabbits that you cannot find in the field. Rabbits even when grass is tall in this and that, recycle their food. They do this because you get certain nutrients out of it the second time through. Oh, it sounds terrible, doesn't it? But again, what's funny is what was written so long ago is perfectly accurate. It just took us what, you figure that was written, uh, what, 1500 B.C.? And here we were, you know, 1900 A.D. So it only took us, you know, 3400 years to figure out that the word was right. So see, the, the thing of it is, is God is laying out certain rules. Yes, as a test for what is good. But... If you say trigonosis and pork is bad, can you get any diseases from beef? What's that? Fat. Fat? 
fat is not a bad thing. Did you also stop to eat it here, though? No. No. Oh, no, no, no. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, do not eat any of the fat of the cattle, sheep, or goats. For a sacrifice. This is different than what you're doing in your diet. What he's asking you to do in a sacrifice is take the best and burn it up. But when it comes to you butchering your animal and eating, it is yours to eat. Now what's he telling you? He's telling you the fat is the best part of it. Same thing my father, especially my father-in-law taught me when it comes to steak. You know, nothing bothers me more. You know, when I'm working back east and I can go to a good Jewish deli and I can get a good pastrami or a good, uh, you know, corned beef sandwich and it has all the fat. It's fantastic. I go to a deli out here and they tell me how lean and, and healthy it is. I'm going, yeah. It tastes like cardboard. The point you that I have learned is that the fat from a grass-raised animal is much, much healthier than fat from a grain fed. Absolutely. Most of the fat from the commercially raised beef that we eat today is not good for you. No, but... But the way they were raised you, then, it was, it was, it's almost as good as eating salmon. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it amazes me. Uh, a friend of mine... Um, in Portland, he's had a minor heart attack, and then he's having some cholesterol problems, and that. And he's always been a, you know, he's what in his uh, early 60s now, but he's always played basketball, and you know, always kept himself really lean. And over the last what four months, he actually dropped 20 pounds, trying to get lean and mean and all this kind of stuff. And he has his heart attack, and they're telling him, yeah, you have a cholesterol problem, and man, you're not eating enough healthy fats, right? Enough healthy fats. They told him that. Well, enough fats. Uh, and, you know, Gail and I were talking to him over the fact that there's healthy fat, so what's he, he's eating a lot of salmon and, and stuff like that. But the, the point being is, you know, people get these things stuck in their heads. You know, whatever, whatever extremes you go through. Well, God's purpose is to live as his people in that land. Now, see, that's another thing that's key. The Abrahamic covenant was very much focused on the land, and the Mosaic covenant is set very much in the land. You cannot divorce this from that land. And you cannot go and applying it everywhere else. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Because it's a witness. Like I said, if I was to say that I keep the Mosaic law, or I try to keep the Mosaic law, the fact that part of the proof is the early and the late rains, right? To help bring in a harvest. Well, look where we live, folks. We must be the holiest people that have ever existed. <laughs> we not only get the early rains and the late rains, we get every rain in between. Right? So, you have to be careful how you apply this. Now, the thing of it is, is ultimately, ultimately, this is going to be fulfilled. Israel is going to be a nation, a kingdom, under a king. These laws will apply, and it will be joyous. It will be fantastic. There, there's not going to be a problem. And then from the Mosaic law, you get into things like wisdom literature, and the Proverbs, and Lamentations. And the Psalms, you have to interpret them in light of what the Mosaic Law is. I love these people who go and read Proverbs and that, and it's just very wise little, little sayings. Be careful. You have to interpret them in light of the Mosaic Law as to what is good and what is bad. It's very key. So the idea that you don't eat fat because it's God's directive, that's great if you're a Levite, and of the house of Zadok, and you're performing a sacrifice for the people, you're doing a noble thing. Other than that, you're putting a spiritual spin on something that you shouldn't be. And for your own sake, 
that's no problem. But when you have movements that come up that start teaching these things and start giving people the idea that you can be better because you keep these things, right? I got mixed up with a group early on that, again, we have to get back to the garden. Get back to the garden. Eat only fruits and vegetables. Well, wait a minute. What do you do with Noah when he, came, or when he got off the boat and God said, hey, see those clean animals? Have at it, right? Start living differently. Why? It's a whole new economy, folks. The world's different. You now have seasons. It gets cold in the winter. It gets real hot in the summer. Didn't used to do that before that time. Didn't used to have rain either. You're going to have to, your body's going to have to learn to adapt. Yes? And uh, without meat, there's going to be a problem. Well, does it mean I'm not being scriptural if I don't eat meat because of the Noah's covenant? No. Do what is practical. Paul says to exercise or to discipline the body, there's profit, but there's little profit. Don't focus on that. He says, focus on what matters. Exercise yourself spiritually. And what's funny is how people take physical things and make them spiritually intimidating. Hugely spiritually intimidating. You will always have the culture dictating certain things. Like I said, I, I heard a guy preach about Germans and Japanese because they eat raw fish and they eat blood sausage. Can you imagine someone teaching that from the pulpit? If it wasn't for those two things, Axis powers would have won the war. Somebody preached that from the pulpit. Yes. Where? It was Bethel Baptist Church in Monrovia, California, and I was a member. It, 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 is, a, it is a sad thing. You know? But again, it, look, we've all met people who have some pretty wiggy ideas of what spiritually does what, right? Yeah. We've all been taught certain formulas that if you simply open in prayer a certain way or close in prayer a certain way, it obligates God to do certain things, right? Yeah. Is that any different? See, those are the kinds of idolatrous practices God wanted to put, put away. So, any other questions about what we had discussed? Because what we left out was the Abrahamic covenant, or I'm sorry, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Now I have this week and next week. So I thought what we might do, uh, how far is Dave in 2 Sam? Any, what, what's that? Fifth chapter. See, he's getting real close to the Davidic covenant. I, I really don't want to touch that too much, except for one simple fact. When when Dave Brown is going to be teaching this, he's going to be teaching it in the context of the book, and in the context of Second Samuel, it will never come up as a covenant. You know why? Remember, I stressed that we weren't going to look at anything scripturally. They didn't call itself a covenant. When you go to 2 Samuel 7, what you have there is, let me just give you the story in general, and then, then we'll, we'll go someplace else. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> what a great thing. In 2 Samuel 7, David is doing well. He's had his problems, um, uh, but he's king. Israel's united under him. And it is time now to get the Ark of the Covenant to the city of David, which is Jerusalem. And David is burdened over the fact that he has such a, a, a wonderful palace, but God doesn't have anything but a tent to wander around in. So David sits there and says, God, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. Something that is great. God says, you know, this is a great thing. And in fact, Nathan, the, the prophet, turns around and sits there and says, yes, David, go for it. Do it. So David works hard to start getting all the preparations set, but then God reveals himself to Nathan and says, no, 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 you tell David he's not to build me a house. Right? Well, I mean, this is the one thing David really wanted to do. So God turns around and he comes to 
David, and he says, I know you wanted to build me a house, this is a good thing. But no, I'm going to build you a house. And the house that God's talking about is his descendants. And ultimately, that one descendant, that son that will come, it is in this part in 2 Samuel that David is called God's son. The term covenant is never used, but the word for to adopt one, which was a common practice for certain kings back in the day, they would find a man that was just exemplary, right? And uh, too often these kings were not the best at raising their own sons, right? And what that you would find is that they would adopt somebody in that would stand as their heir. And this is exactly what God says he's doing. But the amazing thing, and, and I'm going to leave it for David to go through. When you go through 2 Samuel 7 and you see David's response, he clearly understands that God is talking about his descendant, the servant of God, the Messiah who is to come. These people who tell you that when David wrote the Psalms, when you go to Psalm 2, or you go to Psalm 72, you go to these Psalms and you sit there and say, oh, you know, David was just writing. He had no clue about Jesus Christ. No way. There is no way that David did not understand the gospel. Now, he didn't know when it was going to happen. It was clearly, you know, undefined. But David knew the truth. When he writes a second psalm and he talks about, my God says to you, you know, our God says to my God, however that goes, you know, you know, stay here until I make thy enemies, you know, the footstool under thy foot, all that stuff, on and on and on. It has the idea that, you know, people sit there and say, wow, see, it's talking about God, talking to God, and, and, and all this stuff, and, and that's the Trinity, and in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Trinity. They didn't understand these things. Folks, how well do you understand the Trinity? <laughs> now, I know we live in a time where Michael Jordan tells you he can give you 200% of something, right? Which is not possible. So how in the world am I supposed to comprehend something that's 300% of something? I can't. But all I know is that God has manifested himself in these ways. And in David, he promises that Messiah, get this, is going to be a man. He's going to be a king. He's going to be a son of David, and yet he's going to be divine. When, when, when you get to Isaiah later on, you get to things, you know, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God. How, what do I do with this stuff? This, this son to be given to us is going to be totally divine. I don't know how to reconcile this, but all I know is that God promised that the king to come through David will be his son completely divine, and yet at the same time, the son of David. So see, this idea of the world being offered salvation through Noah, the idea that it's through Abraham and his descendants that the world will be blessed, right? Through his seed, being narrowed down to the fact that the Mosaic Law defines the holiness of God and the need of man, and the idea of the need of both priest and prophet very important and uh, that's part of what's in the Mosaic covenant that we uh, kind of overlook but the idea of the priesthood being necessary and the prophetic office being necessary and then even we finding it down even more that in David it's going to be a king even in all this God stresses certain things don't miss don't mix the kingship with the priesthood, remember? Or with the prophets. Don't do that. And yet when you get to Zechariah, after the exile, and they come back, what's one of the visions? I got Joshua the high priest with a crown being put on his head. Just temporary, as a picture of what? There's a king coming, who's also going to be a priest, 
who's also going to be a prophet like unto Moses. All three in one office. And then I find out he's not just king, he's a servant. Isaiah 53, he's a suffering servant. So he's not only the priest who performs the sacrifice, he's also the lamb. Poor. Who could conceive of all this? These threads that seem so, so far apart as they weave towards the New Testament get wound into such a fine cord of faith. It is amazing. But not if you break them up and just leave them isolated on their own. When you interpret the one, realize there's a foundation in the other. God gave this revelation in a way that we build on it. Now, I said we were going to study nothing that didn't use the word covenant. So in the Davidic covenant, turn to Psalm 89 for me. Psalm 89. What's the title? Does anyone have the title page there? What's it say right under Psalm 89? Remembering the covenant of David and sorrow for lost blood. Yep, the Lord's covenant with David. Now, that was added. But why would they have used that word? Well, we'll see. We're told that this is a, a masculine of Ethan, the Ezraite. So, Ethan the prophet wrote this, and uh, he is a descendant of Ezra. It says, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. Selah is pause, right? Musically. But when you, when you hit that, the idea is stop and consider what was just said. He wants to talk about the loving kindness of God. We talked about Jack nailed the fact that God's love screams from the universe, right? But this guy wants to reason it out. Give me your best example. He says, oh, the covenant made with David, the promise of the chosen one, the Messiah, this is it. Now, again, Hebrew way of speaking in parallels, the loving kindness of God and this covenant with David are synonymous. You cannot find anything better. You want to know about the loving kindness? Learn of David's covenant. The fact that God would take what? A shepherd and make him king? That God would take a servant willing to die and make him ruler over all? You know, on and on and on, you can plumb the depths of this. Now the psalm goes on. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness is also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord. Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the counsel of the Holy Ones and awesome above all those who are, who are around Him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crushed Rahab, like the one who is slain, you have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, the earth is yours also. The world and all it contains, you have, you have founded them. The north, the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, shout for joy at your name. You have a strong arm, your hand is mighty, your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth is before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O oh Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In, the name, in your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Once you have spoken to, in vision to your Holy Ones, and said, I have given help to one who is mighty, and I have chosen 
I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant, and with holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will be strengthened in him, and no enemy will, the enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea, his right hand on the rivers. He will cry out to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness will keep him forever. My covenant shall be confirmed to him, so I will establish his descendants forever and his thrones as the days of heaven. Now let's stop there for a second. As you're going through that, he is talking about the wonder, the might of God in all of eternity, in all of creation, in, in just magnanimous terms. And he brings it all right back to the covenant that is going to be fulfilled in that descendant of David. When he says, my, you know, I have found David, I have given him, you know, the title of firstborn. That's not talking about bringing David back to life. What David are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus Christ. We're talking about Messiah. That is the David we're talking about. And what's amazing here is how he sits there and says, I am going to give my name to him. Well, wait a minute. When you read the whole Old Testament, how willing is God to share his glory with anything or anyone? It's exclusive, folks. He does not give his name. He does not give his glory to anyone. He's not a God. Oh, if that fact, you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. There is only one. There can be only one. And yet, this descendant of David is going to be that one. Now, what's amazing is read on. Verse 30, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my statutes, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendant shall endure forever his throne, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the, in the sky is faithful. But you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. What you get into here, folks, it's hard to read. He deals with the fact that men's sons are still going to be sinful and there is no forgiving of sin even for a descendant of David. Look at the weasels that came from David. Yeah. Read the Kings. Read the Chronicles. And yet the promise endures. Yes? And for those, even like Manasseh, who was such a weasel, when he finally turns to the Lord... What does the Lord do? He takes them in. Unbelievable. But what we hit in verse 36 is, why then does the anointed have to be rejected? Why then, verse 40, you have broken down all his walls, you have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the, the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Of all that I'm told of this king, why? Why? He cries out, verse 46, How long, O Lord? 
How long will you hide yourself? Will you burn? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember what my lifespan is, for what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can stand, uh, can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? How many of you can keep yourself from dying? I don't care what rules you keep. I don't care what laws you, you're trying to hold to. This world is trying to convince you that you can't. And the point will come with medicine that they'll offer you the pill that will make you live forever. I'm convinced of that. I know that because in the end times, people will not be able to die. Is that all you care about? Is life here? Glory of God is what's ultimate. Thank you. She knows when to throw things at me. The glory of God is what matters most. Where we stand in that is what matters most. But see, this psalm, more than anything, confirms to us the covenant of David. The covenant as laid out before God. Now, when you read it in 2 Samuel, it is not so much a covenant as it is an adoption. Now, don't you love that picture? Here, David is adopted in like a son, and yet it's to all generations that it goes. Now, this psalm, the sad thing is, is Psalm 89 is used for so many other things that are just silly in trying to teach things. Don't let people take Psalm 89 and teach anything other than the truth of Messiah and the ultimate fulfillment of David in our Lord. Did David suffer like that? No. No, he didn't. Did Solomon suffer like that? No, he didn't. Solomon ultimately gets to build the temple, right? Solomon ultimately gets some of the blessings that come out of 2 Samuel 7. But you know what? It leaves you wanting. <coughs> Samuel, the guy with all the potential. <coughs> or Solomon. Did I say Samuel? I'm sorry. Solomon, the man with all the potential, he's given a gift of what? Ask anything you want. So he asked for wisdom. You would think that'd be a smart thing, right? Well, what did all his wisdom lead him to? Way too many wives. Way too many wives. But isn't it amazing that even in that, he wrote the Song of Solomon? Because so many people misunderstand that that book. Do you know the Song of Solomon's about three people, folks? Not two. It's Solomon writing about a woman, a young maid, the Shulamite maid, who is to be married to a local shepherd boy. But for whatever reason, she's being delivered to the king, to Solomon. And so here she comes. And all she's doing is pining for her shepherd boy. And the story of Solomon is, when she is returned to this shepherd boy, to what is the best picture, one man, one woman, this is a picture of how God wants us to understand romantic love, the greatest blessing that a man can have. You then go back and you interpret things like Proverbs 5, in the light of that, oh man, drink from your own cistern. Drink liberally, right? All this nice similes used for the fact that, you know what? Romantic love is nothing better. That's what marriage is. And the Song of Solomon teaches me that is how close a relationship God wants with His people. Exclusive. Intimate. <clears throat> To be shared with nobody else. You know, I, I always uh, can't help but think of uh, in the book of Revelation, when we're told that when we get to that eternal state, there's that one moment that I can't wait long enough for. I sit with him and he gives me a stone. And what's written on that stone? My name. My name. 
his name for me, who I was from before the you know foundations of the world in all of creation. I know what my father named me. I know what my wife calls me. I know what my kids say about me. I know a lot of things. I know what other people say about me too. I hear it all the time. But what matters to me ultimately is what God names me. Because when God names you, it defines you. I want to know what that is. Yeah? And that kind of intimacy I find with nobody else. If I told you the pet names that Gail had for me, oh, you would blush. Oh. <laughs> you wouldn't believe them, but you would also blush. You know? So, we know from this song that in light of Israel, it is seen as a set covenant. It is part of this covenantal walk. And yet, when you look at it in the light of David, and I'm sorry, Jack, I don't mean to offend you week after week. <laughs> Too late. Too late. <laughs> and Connie, it is good you stick with your man. Stick with your man. We look at the fact that it is in the context of adoption that matters. Now, when I get to the New Testament, um, think of groups, uh, even in our day, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, right? They're, they're so proud over the fact that they're servants, right? They work harder than anybody to get themselves saved. And, and the best that they're ever going to be is a servant to Jehovah, right? Okay, wonderful. Why live under such bondage? There's freedom in Christ. You don't have to earn your salvation. There's more than 144,000 slots of, you know, good things. I don't know what they do with the rest of them, but the, the early, early Jacobites and, or uh, Russellites and all that, you know, originally only 144,000 could get saved to begin with, right? Well, luckily, luckily the resurrection happened and we're living in the kingdom now, so I think there's room for more of us, uh, is the idea. But see, why do these people have to live under such bondage? They need to hear what the gospel is and be liberated. You don't have to be a servant. You can be adopted as sons and daughters of the king. When it talks about Jesus' descendants, we're it, folks. Forget the king and queen of England, right? Don't fall into that silliness, right? The old blue blood thing. But we are just that. And in Christ, all these things are fulfilled. We are going to quit a little bit early. I'm going to go over and try and calm down. But, uh, He's got to preach, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so in light of that, any, any general questions about the Davidic covenant? Uh, I just wanted to point out that Jeremiah 33, 20 and 21, God says, if you can break my covenant with the day and covenant with the night, then you can break my covenant with David. Amen. Amen. But now, okay, and, and in this psalm, how we talked about how the sun and the moon will bear witness, right? Well, where did that phrase first come from? Where did the phrase that the heavens and the earth will bear witness? Or if you can stop the cycles. Oh, come on, guys. The covenant with Noah. And isn't it amazing that that holds all the way till you get to Revelation? Because what happens at the end of the book of Revelation? The cycle is broken. When you get to the new heavens and the new earth, it's broken. All things are made new, even from that. But what that tells me is from here to there, God's going to make sure that the cycle of the seasons and the sun and the earth and all that's going to stay the same. Now, man's going to do his best to try and blow it all up, right? But you know what? It ain't going to happen. When people tell me that there's going to be a nuclear, you know, whatever this now, okay, politically I have to do what I need to do to uh, deal with such, uh, you know, silly concepts and, and check men as they need to be checked. But, you know, ultimately... I know what God has written in our history. It ain't going to happen. How's this world going to get... Uh, 
what, what's the, the biggest catastrophic thing going to happen on the earth? Scripture reveals it to you. Well, burn up with fire towards, yeah, that's when the, the, the old earth is done away and the new heavens come. But before that, you know, this is one of those things you ponder. Okay, it, it, it's an interesting thing. I've had more people sit there and say, you know, the new, like the Mormons, you know that the new world, you know, North and South America, that's where God's going to save everything. He's going to make sure that the old world passes away and this and that. I'm kind of going, well, you know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me. Because I have a lot of nations mentioned at the end times. Nations that I know, Russia, Iran, China, Ethiopia, Libya, all these things are mentioned. North and South America are never mentioned. Alright? And a lot of them say, well, they didn't know about it. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know, but I didn't know about it, right? <laughs> but no, during the time of uh, the tribulation and that, a big old comet comes. What's it called? Wormwood. And this thing strikes the earth and destroys a third of the land and a third of the seas. Yes? Well, some guy did some calculations. And you know what? how much landmass North and South America make up of the earth? A third! So, what do you think? Uh, they, they think the last big comet that uh, hit the Earth, or not comet, but uh, asteroid, whatever it was, that destroyed the dinosaurs, that fell off of the Yucatan, right? So if that fell off the Yucatan and it killed all the dinosaurs, all the way around the world, how much destruction do you think a comet or a asteroid that hits the Earth that can destroy one-third of all land and sea how much catastrophe do you think that's going to cause around the world? I'm thinking it could cause a little bit of problem. Right? But again, am I going to sit here and, and pray that it doesn't happen? Alright, am I going to stand here and, and hope that it happens? You know, when, when I'm having trouble with my neighbor and that, and he's bugging me, do I go out there and say, I hope one word comes to lines right on your head, right? <laughs> Have you ever heard people try and use spiritual things that way? How slow, right? It simply let us know, hey, don't put your hope in this. Don't put your hope in that. What do I put my hope in? The loving kindness of the Lord. Psalm 89, where does it lead me? Oh, the covenant of David. And then to read the New Testament, and find that the son of David came and he fulfilled what those verses said as far as being afflicted. He fulfilled everything that the servant needed to do. He was the Lamb of God. The payment's been done. All we wait for is what? Oh, come back, Lord Jesus. Even so, the king must return. The king needs to come and sit on his throne and rule in righteousness and get all the glory he deserves. But you know what? Even in that, there are going to be those who will not bow the knee, who will rebel. And I'm sitting here kind of going, Lord, not me. Help me, Lord, not me. I want my Lord back. Now next week, we're going to go back to Jeremiah 33. Because Jeremiah 33 has a very interesting covenant. It's called the New Covenant. And that New Covenant is why your middle of your Bible, well, actually two-thirds of your Bible, through says the New Testament, which is the same word for covenant. And yet when we read Jeremiah 33, the New Covenant, it lists there, is quite different than what we see today. And I'm going to need some answers from you as to what those differences are and why. Just to drop a bomb on you, the new covenant was not given to the church. There is no covenant in the New Testament. The new covenant was given to Judah and Israel exclusively. So with that, that should make you feel real comfortable in your faith. <laughs> Let's close. Father, I just thank you for your word. Thank you for the greatness of your promises. Thank you for choosing David, revealing that heart to us. Not a perfect man, Lord, but a great man of faith. And truly your servant, that you made your king. But thank you so much more, Lord, for the eyes you've given us to see that son of David, to recognize our Lord who came so 
so veiled before us, so meek, so mild, and yet, Father, He changed the world. Because I know, Lord, He changed my own heart. In that, Lord, help us all to weigh this out. But help us to fall back also and understand that this has been a promised longing coming. And Lord, we still wait and want that King return to us. Give us the faith to hold on. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.